Well, good morning to each of you. I've been amazed in listening so far how Brandon's thoughts over the devotions and uh, even the psalm that Dave read um, are going to tie into the scripture, the few verses that we're going to look at together. Before I get started in, uh, in the text, I do have one question for you. How do you feel about tight spaces? People feel differently about them. Some people are quite okay with them, and other people, being in a tight space is about as bad as it gets. So a little bit of a confession. Last uh, Yesterday afternoon, I shouldn't say confession, a story that maybe Nicole wouldn't enjoy me telling, but I'll tell it since she isn't here. I became aware of a hole in our attic uh, by hearing noises of something, some, something scurrying around up there. And so it became time to go up into the attic and find out where this hole was and take care of the problem. So last night, about 7 o'clock in the evening, I found myself up in the attic with Ashton in a two-story townhouse, crawling towards the back corner on my belly to get far enough in there to reach the problem, scooting along a little board so I don't fall through my ceiling, um, not really enjoying laying down on the insulation there, reaching back in, and, there's, and, and the further you get into the, cor- into the corner, the smaller this, the opening becomes. So reaching back in there and assuming and hoping I could clean out this nest with the broom, and turns out I couldn't do it, had to get close enough back into there to reach and grab it with my hand. And I was very anxious to get this project done and close that little hole and get out of that tight spot as fast as I could. So I don't know, can anybody else relate to, to that feeling? You, you just you do what needs done and you move on as quickly as you can. Today I want to talk about what do we do when we find ourselves in tight spots, not physically, but in situations that feel that they're closing in around us or that we're in a tight spot um, or that we're under pressure or under stress. Um, how do we handle those types of situations? And uh, the reason I want to talk about it is, is my mind kept going back to a certain psalm, Psalm 4, um, and we're going to look at the text, and that is what the psalm is about. So the psalm, it's only eight verses, and it, it takes us on quite the journey. It starts out as a bit of a personal lament, and then it talks about the distress that he's feeling. Then it ends in confident trust and peace. And we actually don't know what exact situation David was in when he wrote the psalm. There are a couple of, I guess, of theories or guesses, one being that he was under personal attack or being slandered, and that would make sense with what the psalm says. There's another theory that there was some type of a famine in the land or a national crisis, and people were saying, where is God, and we're coming against David. And either one, I don't know that it really matters the background, but I think even though the situation is different, we can all relate to some of the feelings that he might have, uh, have felt as we go along in this. So uh, how do we walk with God in the middle of situations in life that may feel tight or pressure-filled or uh, just where, where things are closing in on us? Um, so I'm glad you've turned to Psalm 4. If you would, um, let's stand together. And I actually have, I have it here on the screen in King James. Let's read the text together. Um, So this is Psalm 4, verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing, Selah? 
But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed, and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness, and put your trust in the Lord. There may be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart, more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. Thank you. You can be seated. So just as a very simple outline and framework as we work through the psalm, I broke it down into three sections. The first one is going to be verses 1 and 2, and that is a call for help in stress. Uh, the second section is going to be freedom from sin, and that's verses 3 through 5, and then ending with looking at the promises of God in verses 6 through 8. So hopefully that just gives us a little bit of a framework. So I want to go back, and, and again, so starting in the first section, verses 1 and 2, the call for, um, call for help in a time of stress. And there's just a number of concepts in this psalm that are very meaningful to me and I think key to us walking with God in those situations that feel, um, that feel tight to us. One of the things I'll just point out in verse 1, he says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. And I won't spend a lot of time here. It's the only place in the Bible that that, that name or that phrase is used for God. So, O God of my righteousness. And for, this really captured Spurgeon's attention. And so he wrote about this. This was something that I think that really grabbed him, that God of my righteousness. And so as we think about this, I think it's important to remember that God is our only source of righteousness. Our own righteousness outside of Christ is compared to filthy rags. And so God is our righteousness. And he's declared us righteous, not by overlooking our sin, but through the death and resurrection of Christ. So he is our righteousness. And I want to just look at a couple of these words to explain the concepts here. So when he talks about that when I was in distress, the reason I, I told the story that I did is the word for distress is just literally when you're in a scenario where life is closing in on you. And it has the idea of just being squeezed. And it can be from foes or those that are against you or just, just in general. You're in a, in a spot where, you are, where you're being squeezed. And it's interesting, so at the start of this, he actually, he has three requests. He's asking God to hear me, have mercy on me, hear my prayer. And then he, he makes a statement, thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. And I find it interesting that, that the word is enlarged. And, and we could say that God brings us relief. But again, if you look at the word, the idea is actually that God makes space for you. So isn't that fascinating that stress is described as being squished? And that relief from God is described as being enlarged. And that is literally the meaning of the word. So I've, just a very simple illustration. I brought a balloon up here. So we know what stress feels like. And I could put you all under stress if I pushed on this too hard for those of you that hate when balloons pop. But, you know, when life has a way of putting us in scenarios where, where we feel a lot of stress. And the word for what God does is he enlarges and sometimes that is that literally he changes our circumstances, right? And the balloon is not squished as much. But if you read this, it actually says that thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. 
And I find a lot of comfort in that, that often God may not change our circumstances, but he does actually change us on the inside. So a balloon, you can, you can fill up more to meet. And I, I think what the, the picture is here, that God, when he helps us, he gives us what we need to meet the reality of our life. And so sometimes that is pulling us out of the situation. Other times that's just uh, enlarging us on the inside. And so I, I find a lot of comfort and joy in God, uh, God doing that. But in the middle of this, he's, he's asking God to hear him and he starts looking back that you've done this for me in the past. And I think that's so powerful for us to look back on how has God met us in the past? What scenarios, and I, I would ask you, what scenarios in your life do you look back on of times that God enlarged you and brought you through a difficult time? Are there certain times in life that your mind goes to? And I think there's so much value in that to remind ourselves and then to share those stories with this group. You know what? I was in this situation and God met me there. And it's one of the things I appreciate about having older folks at the church. They have more life to look back on to say, I was in that situation and I was in that situation and here's what God did. So as we face times of stress, I think it's always important to look back on what God has done. All right, let's go on to verse 2. And here he changes a bit, and he's asking, how long will you uh, basically turn away from God? And where he's talking about the sons of men, it does have the idea of the leaders at that time were turning away from God. And he lists three things that they were doing, turning glory into shame. They were loving vanity and seeking after leasing, or the word would be lies. So they were not following God. And when, whenever people choose to not follow God, it does turn truth upside down. I was thinking about examples. You know, whenever any people, any person or culture uh, chooses to not define truth by the word of God, then this is what will happen. Glory gets turned into shame. People follow lies. And just one example from culture when, you know, now when you unhook truth from the Bible, then standing for truth gets flipped upside down as being intolerant. And tolerance is the virtue. So anyway, we could, could go on and on and on um, with examples of what happens. And so I think that David was feeling a lot of stress from this situation around him. Whatever people were doing um, caused him to feel very distressed and stressed. So I want to do a uh, transition to the next part of the outline um, of freedom for, um, from sin and look at a couple of concepts here in 3, 4, and 5. And I will say, um, and hopefully this becomes clear as we go along, when I talk about being in a tight spot, I don't think too big. I mean, you can think big situations in your life, but if you're honest, what are the situations that just flat out make you grouchy, that you run out of patience for? Um, so let's think both ends of the spectrum here as we go through this. Okay, so verse 3, but know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself, the Lord will hear when I call unto him. So how does God uh, free us from sin in stressful times? So the first thing he says that we are to know is that the Lord has set apart the godly. And I want to just talk a little bit about what godly means. And again, I hope this doesn't seem too technical to talk about the words, but the concepts I think really matter behind the words. 
So in the Psalms, the word for godly gets translated godly or saints or holy one. And it's interesting because as you read through that, you may identify more with some than others in a personal way, but it's all the same word. So when, it, when, when the Psalm talks about godly, it, the, the root word is the same as loving kindness, and it's the verb of that, which means it's the person who is living in God's love and is actively loving God back in a covenant kind of relationship is kind of a simple definition of that. So when, when we hear this, the God knows how to set apart those who are accepting his love and living in that love. And then the word for set apart um, is also very interesting. So it can be translated a lot of different ways, but the one that I will point to is it's the same word in, in Exodus when God was bringing the plagues on Egypt. And they, I think it was flies, was it flies? It was going all over Egypt. And he said that in the land of Goshen, Goshen is set apart. The flies can't go here. And then uh, the, uh, another reference that I will just point out is in Exodus 11, in the last plague, when uh, the firstborn of all the, of the animals and people were going to die. Um, here's the, the concept for it. Um, so Moses said, thus says the Lord about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction or sets apart between Egypt and Israel." So literally, in the land of Egypt, there was a house, there was not a house where somebody hadn't died, and the cry of that was great. And to show the thoroughness of God's protection, even the animals in the Israelites' houses were quiet. You didn't have dogs barking. You had no dogs growling. God thoroughly set apart um, his people. So jumping back here uh, to the psalm, when we find ourselves in hard times, we can take comfort in knowing God knows how to set apart. And the set apart doesn't mean that we don't go through bad times, but we are entirely protected from anything that God does not want to get to us. So we are entirely inside of God's, uh, God's control. And beyond just meaning set apart, as in it's, it also has the idea that God is making something wonderful out of what he has set apart. So God knows how to set uh, the godly apart. And the whole reason we're set apart, is it about us? Not at all. We are set apart in hard times for himself. So God knows how to set us apart for his purposes. And, and this concept is uh, definitely woven throughout the New Testament. Very familiar passage, but in 1 Peter 2, where he talks about being a set apart or a chosen generation um, just pointing out that the reason is that, uh, for this is that we would show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So when we're being squeezed, God knows how to set us apart for his purposes, and we are safe in that. Then uh, verse 4 feels like quite the transition. So he's crying out to God, and he's saying, you know what, God knows how to set us apart. And then he says, stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. 
So what, what is going on with this transition from God knows how to set you apart, now stand in awe. Other translations would say, be angry and sin not. That's actually what is quoted in Ephesians 4. So what, what is going on here? Does it feel like an abrupt change to anybody? I think one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that whenever we, whenever we come to a spot in life that is difficult or we're under stress, uh, maybe we're dealing with pain or whatever, we do come to, it, it does bring us to a choice. And the choice is basically this. Am I going to stand in awe of God and remember who God is or am I going to choose my own way to deal with whatever the hard circumstance is? So, and, well, I can explain that a little bit more later with the whole thing of, of how this relates to the translation related to anger. So I want us to think about that, and I think this verse is bringing us to that, that these situations bring us to the why in the road. Which way are we going to go? So bouncing back to the verse, it says, Stand in awe, sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Selah. So the word uh, that's translated here, stand in awe, it, it just means to tremble, to tremble with emotion. And so people weren't sure, how do you translate that? Um, and so some, some would translate it that it's, it means anger, that when we're in hard situations, we're going to feel angry, but do not sin. And Paul in Ephesians 4 quoted that because that's how the Greeks translated the Old Testament. But also in, uh, in today's Sunday school lesson, there was an example of what it means to tremble when you're under conviction. I think at the end of the passage, the leader was feeling conviction, and Scripture tells us that he was shaking. He didn't respond to God that we know. Um, but I think that that is a good translation, that we are to stand in awe or stand in reverence of God and who he is, what he's doing, and to choose his way. And in hard times, if we choose to go our own way, it sets off this cycle of sin, where we choose to do our own thing, creates more, more pain and problems, and it, it spirals down, versus if we choose to stand in all of God, we can choose to become more and more like him uh, in these situations. So we're told to stand in awe of God, to not sin, and to meditate within your own heart upon your bed and be still. When you're, in, when you're in tough situations, let's say you're angry or dealing with pain or feeling tight, what do you think about when you lay in your bed? Is there anybody else like me that has a, my mind wants to just go back to rehashing the problem and rehashing the problem and then thinking about tomorrow and then rehashing the problem? And unless you have better success than me, it really doesn't, it almost never helps me. Um, but I, I really, well, as the pastor, you end up hearing what I need a lot, and so this is what I need, um, of going back to this concept of, you know, at the end of the day, God wants us to settle down, to meditate in our heart, reflect, remember who he is, and to choose his way in hard situations, and he will be, he will be faithful to keep us um, through that. Then going on to verse 5, he tells us, offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. And it just is, is wrapping up this section of how do we walk freedom, how do we find freedom from sin in tight spaces? And again, God knows how to set us apart. 
We are to stand in awe of him, to meditate honestly before him. And then we are to choose to offer the sacrifices of righteousness, that we, we choose to do the right thing. We choose to follow God's path when we find ourselves in those situations. And beyond just the sacrifices of righteousness, we're to put our trust in the Lord. And I find this challenging because God, God cares both about my actions, what I do, you know, offer the sacrifices of righteousness, and he cares about my heart and my attitudes. Put your trust in the Lord. And so when we come to the why, if we choose God in these situations, he meets us and we become more and more like him. So in this section, uh, there's a lot of, so the first part is prayers, and this section is where the direction is to us in these times. The things we are to know, the things we are to think about and to offer, um, to offer the sacrifices. Are, you in a situ- are there any situations you can think of now where you can choose to stand in all of God uh, versus choosing your own way? Or maybe where you're dealing with anger and you can choose to stand in all of God, let that anger go or let God take care of, take care of it and then move on with sacrifices of righteousness and trust. All right, I want to move on uh, to verses 6 through 8. And this is dealing more with the promises of what God does in these situations. There may be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. So there might be lots of skeptics and cynics who say, there's no point to following God. Who's going to show us anything good? And here we come to what I think is the main prayer or David's main request for himself out of this. Do you see what his request is? His, his main prayer in all of this is, Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. So after all of these things, he's saying, this is, you know, remember these things, and what he really wants is God's countenance to shine on him. Why would he ask for God's countenance or God's face to shine on him? I want to just read out of Numbers, and this is one of the most common and repeated blessings for the children of Israel and even today. Starting in verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So when David was feeling squeezed, what he really wanted is God's face to shine on him. And it's a little bit of a different language than maybe we use today, but just thinking about somebody's face and what it, you know, what it communicates. When you think about if there's somebody that is very close to someone they have not seen in years, and the person walks in the room, you know, we, we use language like their face lights up. And, and it's the image of God looking at us with that favor and joy and blessing. And his face, his countenance, is literally just shining on us. And I can't think of anything better for myself when I'm going through hard times to know that I have a Heavenly Father. He's looking at me. I'm not forgotten. I'm not lost. And His face is actually shining and full of goodness towards me. And that's what David asked, that he would just know that, God would, that God's face is on him and that God is looking at him. And it, it really is another way of talking about God's presence. God's presence and, and favor all wrapped up in this. So that's what David was looking for. Then he goes on uh, from here in verse 7. 
And he says, Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time of their corn, time that their corn and their wine increased. And so he's in a hard time again, and he's saying, God has put joy in his heart. And I think that's so important for me to remember that joy is something that God actually does give to us and put in our heart. And the joy here is actually better than the physical situations. He's saying God's joy is it's greater um, or more. So I would say both quantity and probably the quality of the joy is greater than joy that comes just from circumstances. <clears throat> One of the things I uh, was also thinking about this, if, if just our physical circumstances would create joy, would you agree that the people in the U.S. should be some of the happiest people in the world? I mean, we are arguably living in one of the most affluent countries throughout all of history. But do you know where we fall on people who track these things? It's actually really low. And I found this so fascinating. And granted, this was 2020, so hear it for what it is. In 2020, um, the number of U.S. adults that was asked to how they would describe themselves, the number of U.S. adults that chose very happy, there was 14% of the U.S. population as adults would say, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy. And, but even if you go pre-COVID, the numbers aren't actually that much higher. And people have been tracking this stuff for 50 years. Anyway, it's just fascinating that affluence doesn't equal joy. And so as believers, um, let's remember that joy does come from God. It's something that he actually puts in our heart. Um, I think about the verse that we quote often about this, the joy of the Lord will be your strength. And I think it's important to remember this was a people who had sinned against God. Their city was destroyed. They came back and they're looking at their city that's destroyed and they're reading in the law. God is showing them how their sin and they're crying. And God is saying, you know, repent, but the joy of the Lord is going to be your strength. And so I find a lot of comfort when I think about being in a tight spot. Maybe I think about not handling stress well. God says the joy of the Lord can be your strength um, through repentance and trust on him. Please hear this other little bunny trail for what it is as well. I'm not against social media, so don't hear me saying that. One of the things that's fascinating about the study, and I think it's informative for us, is when they study teens and their happiness and joy, it goes along fairly evenly and then sharply declines in 2012 which was largely when a lot of the social media platforms became uh, more, more popular. And so what's, what's interesting, as screen time goes up, joy and happiness go down, and the things that God wired us to receive joy from, such as a church, being physically with people, exercise, hard work, as all of those things go down, predict predictably the joy measures go down. So again, please hear it for what it is. I'm not saying everybody deletes Instagram off their phone, but honestly, it was kind of a wake-up call for me that use these things for what they are, but in excess, they have a very negative impact on our life. Okay, end of that money trail. I'm going to jump back onto verse 8 here. In verse 8, he says, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. As somebody who likes to stay up late 
Um, and when things are on my brain, I can't go to sleep. I find it instructive that he tells me that I can lay down in peace. So the first part is my choice when I go to bed and then thankfully can sleep in peace in the middle of these hard times. But the end of all this is that God is the only one that makes us dwell in safety at the end of the day. There is no safety or there is limited safety anywhere else. And if we really truly think about this, how much control and safety do we truly have over our health? Yes, there's things we can do. How much control do we really have over our physical safety and what people choose to do to us? You know, we really, we have very limited control, but God is the only one that causes us to dwell in safety. And I was even thinking about this related to, to President Biden. He's, he's under fire right now because he went to a summit to talk about um, the environment, but his motorcade to get him there had 50 cars. And, and so, yeah, there's irony in that. But my point in bringing that up, you know, you think about somebody that should dwell in safety. You know, he, it's, it takes 50 cars to, to make so that he feels, well, so that whoever's behind it feels safe. And my point is there, even with all of that, there's limited safety that we can bring on our own. Our safety literally comes from God. And, and we need to just remember that God is our only source of safety. When we accept that, that allows us to lay down in peace and to sleep because God does make us dwell in safety. I want to read a couple of quotes from John Piper um, about sleep and just, uh, he calls it a theology of sleep. I don't know, well, you can see what you would call it. Sleep is a daily reminder from God that we are not God. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep, Psalm 121.4, but Israel will. For we are not God. Once a day, God sends us to bed like patients with a sickness. The sickness is a chronic tendency to think that we are in control and that our work is indispensable. To cure us of this disease, God turns us into helpless sacks of sand. That is not very kind. Helpless sacks of sand once a day. How humiliating to the self-made corporate executive that he has to give up all control and become as limp as a suckling infant every day. Sleep is a parable that God is God and we are mere men. God handles the world quite nicely while a, whole, while a hemisphere sleeps. Sleep is like a broken record that comes around with the same message every day. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Man is not sovereign. Don't let the lesson be lost on you. God wants to be trusted as the great worker who never tires and never sleeps. He is not nearly so impressed with our late nights and early mornings as he is with the peaceful trust that casts all anxiety on him and sleeps. So for somebody who enjoys working late, this is rather convicting. So again, at the end of the psalm, um, he says, I will lie down and I will sleep because God is the one that causes me to dwell in safety. So just thinking back on the outline, the end of this section here and God's promises uh, for, the, for this section, I'm very thankful that God's face shines on us, that God is the source of our joy, our gladness, that God gives us peace, and that he is a, a place that we can look for safety um, when we find ourselves in, in hard and difficult times. So my, my takeaway that I want to remember is that times that are stressful and feel hard, are opportunities that I can choose to trust God 
and experience the blessing of his safety and his provision for me. I invite you to stand uh, for closing. And what we're going to do for the benediction is we're going to read the blessing out of Numbers 6, 24 through verse 26. And uh, then you can be dismissed after that. Read this with me. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Thank you. You are dismissed.